You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Okay, okay. So, mandrills, yeah, I mean, they're just amazing and it's fun to hear stories. This was a job working with them. What can they teach us? It's all basically an illusion. The mandrill, beautiful blue jays, birds, and of course, reptiles that have blue colorations, have hacked the system. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. It's just, what, red, white, and blue, or just blue and red? Uh, Purple, olive, tones of yellow. It's it's a rainbow. Today's a rainbow. Today is a rainbow of colors. One of the most, or maybe even the most, colorful mammal we'll be talking about today. So I can't think. I can't think of another one that's as colorful. No way. Birds, sure, sure, but reptiles, reptiles. of course, yes. Yeah, but not mammals. No way. No. No Nothing touches the mandrill. Nothing touches the mandrill. Yes, Chris. I mean, spending hours watching videos and doing research. Tons of Google images because their faces are just so beautiful. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with the mandrel, Chris and I are do our best to describe it, but you have to stop the car or take a quick work, work break and just Google an image of a male mandrel because it is breathtaking. Their coloration, blue and red oh, faces, yeah. you, it's just I, I went down it's, a lot of rabbit holes this this yeah, week, Chris, because yeah. of ah, just, and a lot of it has to do with color. So yes, if you're yes. into pigment and melanocytes, uh, which are which are cells in the body that actually create pigment and colors that give skin color, uh, hang hang on, it's going to be fun. And if you're not, I pre apologize. <laughs> no, I know. So we'll get through all the, the the boring stuff to get to the color stuff, but. <laughs> You know, this is the. the oh, I don't know. I don't think there's anything boring about <laughs> no. um, about a primate species. Evolution, that's for yeah, sure. And their behavior. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I could talk about their behavior for days. But obviously, we try to keep this podcast somewhat in a reasonable time frame, so yeah, yeah. I won't be able to dive deep into the primate or monkey behavior. But yeah, yeah, yeah. and we'll talk today a little bit about ape versus monkey because a mandrill mm-hmm. is technically a monkey, but. Right. Boy, are they big. And that was the other thing that yeah. blew me away. I didn't realize, Chris, that a mandrel is the largest, the biggest species of Monkey. monkeys. Yeah. 
by far. Yeah, by far. You said, you know, you even said you know, before we start recording, you're like, it almost crosses over into ape territory. It right? does. Like, I, I that's why I had to do some review of like, okay, why, why are they not in the ape family of, of with apes being the gorillas, the orangs and the chimpanzees in general. Yeah. But, those, yeah. or I, I even said I did stump the chump, which is my husband, and he's not a chump. I just like <laughs> no. to steal stu- uh, stump the chump comes from car That's talk. Rare. That's yeah, rare. it That's is rare. rare. Uh, but it comes from car talk, which is like the most amazing radio talk show ever. And mm-hmm. I don't even like cars. So, but anyways, yeah. uh, I asked John, I said, you know, I'm just confused because he has gibbons, which we've covered mm-hmm. the gibbon before on podcast mm-hmm. many Boy, many moons ago. Long, yeah. 100 podcasts ago, yeah. And I said, gibbons are considered lesser apes, technically mm-hmm. speaking. I said, you know, why is a mandrel not considered a lesser ape? And mm-hmm. he and he didn't know the answer. And I was like, yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the answer either. That's the – sorry. I should have fled with that. I don't know the answer either. Nobody knows uh, the answer. Oh, I'm right sure some – I'm sure, yeah, some of the, oh, the, the, pri- the primate experts and the primatologists that yeah, studied yeah. it for 20 years, I'm sure they could know. It. And if I had well, more – it's the evolutionary tree, yeah. Yeah, so and that was just our conversation like yeah. an hour ago before he left for work, yeah. so I didn't have time to look it up. <laughs> but if, it, if there are any primate – I know we have a lot of um, – uh, primate keepers and primate mm-hmm. fans out there. So send us an email and let us know if you have any, um, any, 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 any ideas to help shed some light on, on that. But yeah, it's just, I just love primates. Uh, I'll tell you, I, it's how I started They're my amazing. career, with the golden lion, Tamron doing behavior observations. And as a zookeeper, I, I never experienced working with them firsthand. And that was always – it's a regret I have definitely between primates and great apes not actually mm-hmm. being a keeper for them and having all those interact those specific interactions. But uh, definitely doing behavior observations from a distance, just incredible. I mean – Oh, they are. They are. And I – you know, I when I was volunteering at San Antonio Zoo, I did get to to work some primates. The, the lesser – not great apes. I've never worked any great apes or – even Gibbons, which, you know, John has at his zoo there mm-hmm. in Florida, but I did get to work with manga bees and some other ones. So, you know, and the tamarins are so cute. They're so cute, but not these. And, you know, I have not seen mandrels. I've seen baboons and, you know, obviously all the great apes at all the zoos, but I've not seen mandrels. So I, I would be excited to see one. They're just, they're, they're, and they're endangered. So, you know, they have, they have a story. I do want to say this, Angie, too. Charles Darwin wrote in The Descent of Man, this is what I found interesting. No other member in the whole class of mammals is colored in so extraordinary a manner as the adult male mandrel. They are just jaw dropping beautiful. Well, and we briefly mentioned their face and we'll describe them better, but they're bums. Their bums are that's, to die for. Their rear me. end. Yeah. They've got a rear that's end so colorful. I mean, you know, you have to do a double take, triple take. Like it is yeah. just impressive. And then I, I yeah. kind of went down, not not the way that you go down, but I went down the evolutionary road of why? Like what mm-hmm. what is what is the purpose of all of this besides being beautiful? But the yeah. the flare and the flash and the and the extreme coloration of red and blue they don't even blend together it sticks out mm-hmm. uh and we'll also talk about too with their conservation they are vulnerable and unfortunately these bright brilliant colors 
have made them easy targets for uh, bush meat and other hunters and things like that. So uh, we need to keep our eye close to them. And we'll talk about groups that are doing that um, and helping support and protect their habitat. But, but yeah, Yeah, they're just, Oh, hopefully you'll have a fun pot. Yep. 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 You're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn a lot. And just a couple shout outs real quick, you know, shout out to eyes on conservation podcast. Angie and I have been working behind the scenes. We actually have some, some fun collaborations coming you know, which are, which are starting to bear some fruit. So stay tuned for that. We're going to be announcing that here in the next few podcasts, what that's going to look like for us. But, you know, just working with other conservation oriented podcasts around the world. Um, So we're excited about that. Our friend Corbin, you know, stay tuned. You know, we're going to be doing a podcast with him pretty soon, recording with that. And then just a reminder, you know, Angie and I, you know, we were nominated again for the 2020 People's Choice Podcast Award in the science category that is announced on the 30th of September. So we will let you know how we do. I don't care if we don't win. I mean, last year we were nominated with NASA. We've got a good slate this year. Is it something? I just, pe- yeah. Is it something that people can vote on or no? They next year we should prep it, but our our fans could register to be a voter. And then they go in and vote. So right now they have 5,500 voters that go in and listen to all these podcasts and vote and rank them and stuff. Oh, interesting. If we had fans in there, you know, they'd be like, oh, all creatures, you know, blah, blah, blah. But gotcha. I just love getting nominated. But I think it is, it's, uh, yeah, it feels really good. And, but it is interesting to know too that it's, since it is just people that are registering to vote. Uh, probably it, it isn't super biased. Like it's not my mom voting a no. hundred times, like no, some of those things no, on Facebook, no. which I think are yeah. fantastic. Like for the cutest photo yeah. or whatever, I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm yeah, not, yeah. and I'm not slamming that at all. I just, uh, cause if that was the way this worked, I would be telling people to do that for us. Like just keep it on redial, keep <laughs> yeah, clicking know, it, you know? know yeah, uh, but um, yeah, yeah so those, this is, but... this is not how that works. So stay tuned. That's super fun. And I just received an amazing email this week from Rachel, and I just want to give her a big shout out. Um, She wrote a really detailed email just expressing how much she loves the podcast and uh, she's recommending it to friends and and is excited about maybe pursuing a degree in wildlife conservation now, uh, switching careers actually. So I hope to keep in contact with her because it was really inspiring for me uh, as a fellow scientist and woman and animal lover. So thank you, Rachel. That was a great, great email. Um, Keep up the good work. We'll, We'll be excited to see good things from you. And unfortunately, there were no iTunes reviews. Oh, I mean, it's better right. that there were no bad ones, right? So that's yeah, yeah, good. yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, I, I, but please, if we could get a couple more in the uh, in the month of September, where we're currently at, which is crazy, uh, that mm-hmm. we're already in, heading towards. I, I start to see. I'm starting to see like pumpkin. I know flavored things, hair. and I'm not. I'm not quite ready for that. <laughs> but uh, yeah. uh, so, but no, th- no, thank you yeah. to everyone that does reach out to us personally. Yeah, no, and you know, I'm gonna make sure Mike Bono's submitted a review in iTunes mm-hmm. over there at the LA Zoo. I'm gonna remind him to do that. But just really quick, you know, on Patreon, we were able to send money out this month to the Red Panda Network. So thank you for that. So we got to support them and some of their research. And you know, again, a uh, cup of coffee a month, you help support us, and we get back to conservation. And we actually have voting ongoing right now. I think Coral Foundation is going to win that one. But we're gonna, ah, we're my man to- Dan. 
Oh, there were so many. He I was, said we we're going to donate to two. He was cool. So. Yeah, he was, a, he was yeah, so awesome gonna, to talk to. I'm going to pull some money out of my pocket and donate to the second place finisher too. So Pacific Marine Mammal Center, all the good ones oh, that we yeah. did in the last Yeah, we had a great, weeks. great month. Yep, yep. So, you know, here's here's a, a question I have, Angie. Do you know a famous mandrill in popular culture? Ooh. People should know this. Yeah. I do. I don't know, if you know it or not. I think okay. I do. Okay, we'll save it. We'll yes. Save it. We'll save it. And there might be some we'll singing involved. I might do oh, some singing. Okay. There's a hint. There's a hint. Anybody that's got kids has got to know. There's a hint. All right. So we talked about the color, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, the, the males, but let's talk about generally what, what these mandrills look like. Beautiful. Done. <laughs> Huge yeah, and beautiful. No. So to describe them, I'll start with the the less brilliant part of their bodies, which is still really beautiful. And it's their fur mm-hmm. that covers their body is this brown, gray to olive green color that covers most of the top of their body, except their bum. That will be highlighted shortly. And, <laughs> and then around their neck, if you will, area, it turns into almost like a yellow, like a yellow ring of fur with gold highlights uh, at, at top of their hair, which in the top of their forehead, which make me super jealous. Like I would love that hair color. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but from the front view, their face is where it's at. And so we've yeah. mentioned the bright blue, and I mean bright, and red mm-hmm. color of the face of the name of the male. And so their face looks like a typical primate face as far as beautiful, deep set, big eyes and kind of a broad forehead. But down basically from right below their eyes all the way down to below their nose to the corner of where their mouth is are these, on each side of the nose, are these bright blue bands of skin that have like lines down them on each side. And then the nose, just like ours, in the middle is bright red. And the nose is more pronounced, the nostrils are more pronounced than uh, like a person would have, uh, maybe more similar to uh, a chimpanzee. And I should also mention that their nose or muzzle, if you will, uh, which we call it in the animal kingdom, is elongated. So these colors are go on for a long time, right? Mm-hmm, it's, a, mm-hmm, it's a big mm-hmm. schnoz, if you will, big nose. Uh, and then they reach basically the lips and the lips are also pretty bright red with, they have like usually like white, a little white fur whiskers around. So just striking. I mean, you can't look away. So beautiful. And then, and then below their lips, they almost have like a yellow gold colored beard, uh, which uh, you see on like a lot of hipsters, you know, where they, they grow like a a pointy (laughs) beard or whatever. Yeah. So with stuff gets stuck in it or, or then they have like, they have like beard products to like shape their weird long beard. And I love hipsters. (laughs) I'm a wannabe hipster. I'm a, I guess a whipster. I don't know. I'm not that I'm too old now, unfortunately, but if I lived in like, if, if if I live somewhere else besides Florida, if I live in a cool, like Chicago or New York, um, neighborhood, I I would have definitely been a hipster for sure. Um, but yeah, so they have like a cool little hipster beard and that's yellow. And then, like I said, their, their underside of their body is a little bit lighter than the the top, top part of their fur. And so that's the front end striking. You can't look away. (laughs) It's okay. You're not, you're halfway done. No. And then let's just, let's just rotate them 180 to the hind end. It's, uh, it's, it's like, it's like your, your five-year-old got in your makeup 
Yeah. And just good colored one. their face with everything. Yeah. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. yeah. Good it's one. insane. It's insane. Well, then, and it's and similar on their hind end. And so on their hind yeah. end, for those yeah. of you that are familiar with like baboons, it's similar where the hind end mandrills have the same naked rump that's really pronounced. And, and it's basically the anal genital area, but then also like the rump um, part. Mm-hmm. And it's pink in color with blues and purples, but it's really thick. There's like a hardening of the skin on the bum. And I learned a new word today and I love it. So I'm going to mm-hmm. teach everyone. It's called ischial callosities. So ischial Ooh. is usually more like hip and things like that. And callosity is like a callus. So it's basically a, the piece of skin that becomes thick after repeated contact and friction. And then of course, over time, evolutionary speaking. So with a baboon, that's fine. They have it. It's pink in color, but oh no, the mandrill didn't stop at pink. That's when we added the blue hues to almost make it look purple. And then the blue kind of goes down the side. And when we get into more of why they're colored this way, uh, we'll talk about the different color variations depending on the mm-hmm. age, the sex. And it should be noted too, which is super fascinating, is that the female also has this coloration of her nose and then her bum region. However, it is duller for the most part. Mm-hmm. It's not as pronounced as it's going to be in a male. And so right. the other thing that's really striking about the male versus the female mandrill is that there's a huge sexual dimorphism between them, which is oh, it's enormous. It they think it's, well, one, it's one of the, the ones, right? What was that? Yeah, it's one of the biggest in primates, isn't it? Yes, I think it's one of the biggest in the animal yeah. kingdom, if I read correctly. But yeah. definitely, yeah. definitely primates. So he's a big boy, and she's a little dainty flower, um, but still has, of course, the beautiful nose blue and mm-hmm. red coloration patterns. Yeah, I mean, the males stand about 32 inches at the shoulder. The females are 22 inches at the shoulder, but the males weigh 55 pounds or 33 kilograms. Females half that, 13 kilograms or 25 pounds. So, you know, she's she's about half his size. Yes, yeah. It's, it's huge dimorphism. The other thing, Angie, that I was really like, wow, was the canine teeth. Because <laughs> I think that's what makes – mandrels are so beautiful, but makes them a little – scary mm-hmm. is when they make like threat displays or something. And those huge canines are just, wow. Wow. I mean, almost looks like, you know, a, a felid, you know, something like that, where the male canine teeth can be up to two and a half inches long or six, a little bit over six centimeters where the females one centimeter. Yowzers. Yeah. Compared to the males. Yeah. I was watching a yeah, video so. where the male was yawning and yeah, you could see the canines and it's, they are not a joke. In general, monkey canines are not a joke. And so that's why mm-hmm. in tourist hotspots, whether it's in a national park in Africa or in Costa Rica, places I've been, a lot of people, oh, mm-hmm. let that monkey, you know, whether it's a capuchin or a baboon mm-hmm. or a vervet monkey, let, oh, I want it closer so it'll take a picture. I, uh-uh, like, nope. no, nope, you don't. Nope. No, you, A, yeah. it's really, really bad to feed any wildlife because mm-hmm. they become dependent mm-hmm. on it and they can become aggressive. And then they also, if you're not around to feed them, then they don't know how to get their own food. So don't feed wildlife. And, but even with that being said is you don't, 
they wouldn't be trying to bite you. They're not going to aggressively, they're not seeking you out as a tourist, but they are no, seeking no. out your bread and hummus, which I had a baboon steal for me at Victoria Falls yes. yeah, <laughs> National Park yep, yep, yep. in uh, Zambia. And, uh, Definitely had a capuchin monkey jump on my backpack to get a granola in in Manaus National Park on the west coast of Costa Rica. And those were interesting events. Obviously, they did not bite me, thank goodness, because I know they're canines. But I was upset and nervous because it was not a situation I wanted to be in. And that situation was created out of, unfortunately, tourists feeding them. But uh, in both of those cases, the monkeys learned that they messed with the wrong zookeeper because I wasn't ha- <laughs> I wasn't having any of it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like yeah, but you know how to deal with them. But yeah, they are they 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 definitely are. So you got to be careful. But when uh, watching them, watch from a distance. But interestingly enough, when I asked John because I thought he had worked with mandrills before, my husband mm-hmm. uh, he hadn't. He'd worked with drills, and we're gonna go right. over in evolution. But the drill is very closely related to the mandrill, so not to be confused. Mm -hmm. But although the mandrill is closely related to the drill and also closely related to the baboon, the baboons are very distinct looking, totally different Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, maybe similarities through the face and, of course, that callus, the ischial callus. Let me say Mm -hmm. it right. Mm -hmm. If I'm I'm teaching, let me say it right. Ischial callosity on their hind end that's all similar throughout those different species, but a drill has the same face structure, but it's only dark gray brown in its pelage or fur. So mm. it and it doesn't have that bold colored nose. So it, it is different, but also big, not quite as big as a mandrill. And John used to work with them. And so when I asked him this morning to once again tell me a quick story, he uh, and so when I asked him this morning, like, oh, what was your impression? You know, you worked with them for a while under human care. And he said, Angie, the drills are big, humongous, and pretty intimidating. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. teased him. I said, you know, big and humongous mean this, this, <laughs> the same thing. Yeah, I know, I know. And, he, I know, and he's I know. like, I know. That's just every day I walked in there, it was like, they're big. And this yeah. is a drill. This is a mandrel's even bigger. So. Right, right. Uh, and then he did say too that uh, they are a little bit shy and uh, like not super into the at least the the ones he worked with. So all my primate keepers out there can correct me, but that of all the primates and great apes that he worked with, they were shyer and definitely not aggressive towards him. Like when he was working with the baboons, they were all up in his business and curious. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the course orangutans, which are just like people. I mean, very, very curious yeah. about everything. Uh, yeah, and uh, so, yeah, he just, it was just really interesting. He just said that they were a little bit more shy perhaps or standoffish, but so for him that was intimidating because of their size, right? He didn't really get to know them as well. And, but looking through the literature, that's something that it says over and over again, that as a primate species that they are, even though they have those big canines and they are big, the biggest monkey Mm -hmm. of all, that mandrels Mm -hmm. are not going to, they're not, they're not going to approach you. They're not aggressive. They're a little bit more shy and reclusive than a lot of the other characters of monkey species, like a baboon, like a mandrill and a drill probably aren't going to steal your granola bar when you're hiking type deal. They're not that, um, 
bold. So just really interesting. I, like I said, I wish I would have worked with primates more. No, I know. I know. And yeah, I, I did, you know, uh, mandrills can get up to like 80, 90 pounds. Like the, the I read 120. Like Maybe 120. Yeah, but that's, that's very rare. And I think Guinness World Book record allegedly is 130 pounds, but still. Wow. That's your size. Like that's Angie's size. Yeah, that was my oh, size my pre-COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for that. Uh, no longer. No longer. Okay. Okay. So mandrills, yeah. I mean, they're just amazing, and, and it's fun to hear stories. Yes, especially John working with them. These are from Central Africa. So if you're trying to wonder where they they are from, countries uh, Cameroon, Gabon, Equatorial Guinea, and the Congo. Yeah, like Central so, West. I would say. Yeah, right. Yeah, the west. Yeah, not yeah, not dead central. Yeah, mm-hmm. central west, right along there. And and they're you know they they like the rainforest, you know, thick bush. They they're not out on the plains or anything like that. They they need trees. They they seek trees. You know, Angel talked about that behavior. But at night, right, they go up there and, and sleep in the trees. And yes, stuff, they sleep say. in the trees. But they yeah. do spend uh, for a primate. They do spend a. a, a f- but for a primate, they do spend a fair amount of time foraging on the ground as well. And mm-hmm. as some of these forests are degraded, they will go through, the, they'll easily cross the savanna area. And so for researchers, that's kind of a nice way where they can actually see them and maybe count mm-hmm. how large the horde, which we'll talk about, is that's what a, a group of them mm-hmm. uh, or troop is called. So they, yeah, they're actually a very versatile monkey species as far as tree and ground in my opinion right 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 yeah and you know again this is is another we talk about primates and the importance in the ecosystem you know not only is a i mean they are an omnivore we'll get to that but they do you know eat animals and insects and things like that so that's something they're they're part of the food web and then you know they do things like seed dispersal other things that that primates do. So again, we're talking about a you know a species that's heading towards extinction. It's listed as vulnerable. You've got to care about these animals. I mean, you've got to. That was really, it's really interesting you say that. The more I was reading and watching mm-hmm. videos, preparing for this week's pod. First of all, I've been blessed enough to go to Central and Eastern and Southern Africa on a few different trips, but I, I haven't done anything. In, in the West, Central West. Mm-hmm. And it really, I, it really made me want to be able to experience that because of the different types of forests that they have there. And of course, the, the flora and the fauna, I think like okapis, things like that. Uh, and just knowing that, yes, there are a ton of people fighting for them and they have some land, national parks reserved for them. But it's just, gosh, when you think about how incredible the species is and and odd because of its color it's it's an, it's an evolutionary i don't know what's the word yeah just like <laughs> just oddity, a, yeah. oddity a beautiful oddity yeah, that happened but mandrills really only live in a super small region mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's when i was like god i gotta go see these guys i mean this is just mm-hmm. uh, and for actually, they probably would be able be one that you could actually see in the forest and the trees right. because of their bright colors, colors which yeah, is great yeah, yeah. from the the ecotourism side. But once again, not so great from the you know the bush meat or poacher side. But when talking about another reason why to care, mandrills do draw tourist attention. Perhaps not as much as mountain gorillas and things like that, but they bring a lot of. 
people to the parks, which brings a lot of income to the surrounding locals near that park. And so everything right now, of course, has come to a screeching halt. But when it's not, I say we look into it and try to find out more what's going on over there and who's, you know, who's over there doing research. And uh, Mm -hmm. I just, I just really, I'm just in love with these mandrills. They are. You you set me up perfectly. Thank you. And we didn't plan that. So. You know, talking about, I, I wrote this down. So, uh, oh, really you know, quick for, that. I mean, we don't plan yeah. anything no, <laughs> for <we> the record. <laughs> this show could be like 10 times better if we actually didn't just like get on the video chat and be like, hey, what's, how's your family? How's your friends? Yeah, yeah, how's yeah. life? Yeah, okay, let's do a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but it, it comes together beautifully. So, you know, I go back to episode 155, Bonobos. In that episode, we Bonobos. talk a lot about the Congo. Bonobos. We talk about the the civil strife going on in Central Africa, especially around the Congo. Okay, so obviously mandrels aren't in; they're part of the Congo, but kind of I would say west of where a lot of conflict is. Then I go back. You talk about somebody working there, and I just put a smile on my face because I wrote her name down again, Doctor Daniela Chuseed, who we who did the forest elephants. She's, She's amazing. I met her at a conference. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's episode 158. And so she's out there in the Congo, you know, seeing these animals while she's doing her forest elephant research. So go check that that interview out. And if you haven't heard Bonobos, go. you have to listen to that one. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, another primate. That was the last primate I think we did. I think it was that. They, that was them. But looking at that part of Africa, you did say ecotourism. And so I did find a paper talking about community-based ecotourism in Gabon. And Gabon's like 80% forest where, you know, there has been some poaching of, of forest elephants, things like that. If I remember right, that interview with her. And they know the, the government of Gabon is really worried about resource, resources going away. Especially palm oil has exploded there. Like most of these regions in the tropics around the world. So they're, the government's really worried about the exploitation of their natural resources and they want to protect it. So what they, they were doing is really helping understand how to utilize ecotourism better. Sure. It's important. Be, yeah. Yeah. Because in the 80s, you know, ecotourism emerged and they really want this community-based conservation and development which I know Angie and I in some of our episodes have talked about ecotourism where it works well, like especially Nepal. I, I, I always go back to Nepal. Uh, I love when you Nepal, have the locals, yes. Yeah, when the locals are invested, it works really well. They, they protect the animals, their habitat, because that's their livelihood, right? You get them invested in, in preserving their habitat. So that's going on in Gabon. And, you know, so they're what they're doing is empowering the locals so the locals are the ones that are protecting these areas taking care of the tourists you know we've done some studies on this in past podcasts where a lot of that revenue stream is going into the local community and not in the pockets of a few people or a tour company or something like that right so i just wanted to to highlight what gabon was doing they're running these projects where they're they're investing a lot in these local communities for ecotourism. Obviously, COVID is having an effect on that. You know, so we'll see how that affects in 2020. 
but hopefully going forward, once we get out of this pandemic, you know, it's something that we can look at in Gabon, see what works, see what doesn't work, fix what doesn't work, and then export to other countries around the world, you know, and do this. Well, Chris, and that's science. And it's, for me, it's the beauty of science is that we need to assess things, learn, and then do better, right? That's the goal. And maybe the second time around, you don't get it, get it perfect, but you're able to get it better. And, and, but it's also a frustrating thing of science. And if you're not familiar with the scientific method or a scientist or have studied it, especially like in a pandemic right now, it can be upsetting when there's not the data, like it just hasn't been collected or there's only a little bit. So they're, so we don't know all of the answers of, of what treatments are good or what prevention methods are good. And for me as a scientist, I'm dying to know like, yeah, which is worse, going on an airplane or going to the grocery store? I need data. I want numbers, yeah. things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's that we just don't have that at this point in time. And then, and of course, things change, right? As as one study shows, we learned more things versus the other. And it's really hard when you're like actually living it. And one of my hopes for this pandemic, or maybe a slight silver lining, because there's very few of them, is that people that aren't as familiar with science start to to maybe appreciate that it is a process and that there does need to be money into it. Because from an animal conservation point of view, why would we want to dump a whole bunch of money into doing this thing at a park to try mm-hmm. to, to conserve a mandrel, let's say, if we have no idea if it works or not? Right, right. No, I mean, it, it's, it, and I think that's what was interesting about this, this paper, this project is they are, I mean, they are getting feedback from the locals and right. some things aren't working. Exactly. And Gabon, the go- the government of Gabon has come and said, we recognize ecotourism isn't going to solve all the problems. Right. There's more we have to do to conserve our environment, our habitat, our natural resources. So this is just one piece, mm-hmm. which is good. And so that's why I was like, I'm bringing them up because- like you said, you want to go see these in the wild. Well, I would recommend going to Gabon. That's the one country I've read. And, I, and I'm trying to remember if Daniela said something about them, like especially with the forest elephants that yeah, I'd have to go back and listen to the interview, but highlighted Gabon that it, it's definitely maybe an ecotourism hotspot that is growing in central. And that's West good to know be, because with all the different populations that have been studied by researchers of mandrills, uh, the Lopi National Park, I'm probably not saying that right, but the Lopi mm-hmm. National Park in Gabon is where there's groups of up to 720 individuals that have remained stable for over 20 years. And that's where a lot of the mm-hmm. IUCN and other researchers get some of their data. And so it's basically about 90 squared kilometers of what they consider suitable forests. Uh, and it's very, yeah. there's a lot of diversity. So that, and I don't, I mean, that might be a good park to go to. Because, uh, of course, there are several to pick from if you are ever so lucky to get to go there. But yeah, I think I you're right uh, with Gabon. That would be a, a really good choice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's ugh, so many places in Africa I need to go. All right. Let's roll into evolution. I've, I've got some dorky stuff uh, that you're going to like. Um, you know, just really quick, you know, we've, we've talked about primate evolution. Earliest primates, 55, 65 million years ago, look like, you know, kind of like a prosimian lemur-like fat squirrel size <laughs> is how they describe it. You know, the, the first primates then. North America, Asia, and Europe. So north of the equators where primates started. First monkeys emerged about 34 million years ago. 
then we leap forward to 24 million years ago where old world monkeys emerged in Africa. Mm-hmm. Right. So remember our old world monkeys are those in Africa, Asia. There are some in Gibraltar, the macaques in Europe, but you know, Asia, Africa, are the main old world monkeys, new world monkeys, central and South America. Right. So there you go. Now, I will say that the mandrills, we don't know a lot. So when you talked about in the beginning, some of this uh, stuff you're talking about, we don't know because it's in a part of the world where it's tough to get fossils. Mm -hmm. So Central Africa, it's hard to do a lot of fossils in these dense, dense jungles, right? Or dense uh, tropical forests. So we do know the oldest baboon fossils about 2 million years ago. Wow. Okay. Okay, so baboons have been around for about 2 million years. Mandrills and drills were called forest baboons. And going back, they were somewhat aligned with savanna baboons. But the they say a lot of the baboon-like traits of mandrills is because of convergent evolution, that they're really not that closely related. So you, you would talk thinking baboons and mandrills and drills were, they're really not. I mean, they're related down the tree, just not that close. Right, not as related. close as they originally no. had thought. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. They're actually, so DNA, this is kind of funny, DNA as always, has shown that mandrills and, and drills are more closely related to mangabees. Oh, fun. You so, mentioned them earlier in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, it works with mangabees, so... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And and I wanted to say megabees because for, you know, zoos, people listening that, that sometimes don't understand how animals are, are brought into zoos. When I was there, they had got a bunch of young megabees. I, I think it was about 15 in a bushmeat trade. Mm. And they, they couldn't release them in the wild. They were too young. And so they didn't know what to do with them. So they contacted zoos in the United States and we, I think San Antonio took in like five or six of the babies. So that's how they would get them, you know, in because they were rescued from the bushmeat trade. Mm-hmm. You know, these weren't purchased off the market or anything like that. These were actually rescued monkeys that should have been, you know, maybe euthanized or, you know, would have otherwise died. So, yeah. And for, you know, and, again, and for those of you too, that maybe haven't caught up on all of our hundreds of podcasts, like, there's a yeah, lot of yeah, them now. Yeah, yeah. I don't, FYI, I don't blame you. Uh, That's a lot of hours, but there is a great episode way back when about uh, why zoos and aquariums matter. And it should be noted that this is definitely a reason um, that sometimes they can take in animals that otherwise wouldn't make it. However, that's not their, typically the first way that they acquire animals. In fact, a lot of the accredited in fact, the majority of animals that are in accredited zoos and aquarium are actually bred there. So they are able to then keep the, they understand the genetic lines, who's not related to who, and how do we 
They build species survival plans or SSPs to help keep them genetically distinct from one another. And then, of course, as they have more babies and things like that, then they might ship them off to another zoo that needs them. So typically the the act of going out and getting an animal in the wild and putting it in a zoo is very that's uh old so that that that's 100 that, years ago yeah so anymore, it yeah. is uh it's pretty rare but there are ins- and there are instances like this where they want to help help out and get it and so it's always shocking to people when i worked at the zoo and they were like oh you know i i rescue this turtle or here's my pet bunny you know mm-hmm. will you take it and the answer is like no we don't yeah, know the genetics yeah. we don't we don't take that's mm-hmm. what a wildlife rehab, which you've done some great interviews for that. There are mm-hmm, places that mm-hmm. will do that. And typically a zoo is not one of them, even for exotics. Like a lot of the mm-hmm. zoos won't take in the white tiger that nobody wants anymore because it's too big and dangerous right. because they don't want to support that backyard breeding to begin with. Yeah. And then also yeah, yeah. they don't want it in their collection of Siberian tigers or, mm-hmm. you know, so Anyway, sorry about the side note. I just uh, wanted to make sure no, that for no, people that don't haven't point. listened to all all of them is that uh, they will sometimes rescue certain animals from, like you said, the bushmeat trade or an right. orphan thing here and there. But it, it usually it's a pretty rare case, uh, especially if they're coming from like humans in the United States Africa, or something yeah, yeah. that they won't, you know. Um, but this is a, a good, a really interesting circumstance. And I was actually reading about mandrills and mm-hmm. and, and primates in general, and they actually are tough to reintroduce to the wild mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. carnivores because they have so very, many very. if they're if they're because if they're raised under human care and they don't have to always hunt for their food or learn how to find it hunt might not be the right word but search forage for their food uh, that's a skill set that you just don't pick up on i mean i know if i was dumped out in the wild i, I yeah 48 hours, 72 hours, I'd be toast. I have no, I, know, I, know. I can't light a fire. I can't, I mean, it would, it would be a mess. It would be a hot mess. I need to actually go do a Girl Scouts round or something. Maybe make my boys take, make my boys take Boy Scouts and they can teach me how to survive in the wild. And so, but it's similar for another type of primate. So the, the reintroducing the wild can be difficult. However, I did find a really cool group that is working with rehabilitating mandrels from the bushmeat oh, wow, okay. trade or poaching that are found as as young that they're able to rehabilitate and release in the wild so Ooh, when i'd love to see, hear more about that yeah. yeah so we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast so it, it can be done but it's not something i know a lot of people are like oh we'll just set the animals free it's like it doesn't unfortunately no, work no, and then of course it doesn't no work way. like that for a lot of the species of course like hoof stock would be fine because they just eat grass so those guys you could probably release but but even then even then i'll go back to allison this is like episode 24 you know allison kennedy benson go listen to that episode on rhino relocation These were rhinos that were, I think, from London Zoo, reintroduced, and how many months it took Mm -hmm. to train them to avoid people, go out in the bush and survive. and Find the right plants and all of that. Yeah, she did all that training. Mm -hmm. She did all that training with them in Africa, sleeping in bomas while lions were... I'll never forget her story. (laughs) She's all by herself. She she didn't carry guns, anything like that, in these bomas with her her, uh, black rhinos, they were, right? Mm -hmm. And... She had a pride of lions right outside the boma. Yeah. And she was just like, oh, my God, if they go into the water trough, I'm dead. I'm dead. <laughs> you know? So listen to that interview. It's it's one of my, it's one of my, still one of my favorites. There are so many conservation out, heroes out there, and she's definitely one of my, one of my icons. She's a special person. Yeah. 
for love sure. Her, love her and all the work she's done. And I just wanted to say too, I, I did say, you know, zoos don't do that anymore. Accredited zoos in the United States do not do that anymore. I'm pretty sure Europe accreditation and, and Asia, South, you know, Australia, yeah, and there's, New Zealand. Right. There's, of course, just like all industries, there's- and less. Right. There's well, unless, definitely much unless, less, of course. Well, no, I'd say unless like- the species in peril. Correct. And like they're bringing them in the Javan rhino, right? Your good old buddy. Um, yes. Dr. Barney uh, Long. Yeah, there you go. Look at my, look at my smile. <laughs> he was again. another good one. Yeah. And how, yeah. And see how that's doing, how they're doing. But they had to actually go and bring them out of the wild under human care to save them. Right. It so was, yeah, it was still in the jungles of like on. Java or Sumatra. But yeah, I mean, it. but yes, definitely under human care so they can meet each other. They were in all these pockets isolated where they with these small patches of forest and there's no land bridge or tree bridge mm-hmm. for them to meet. So they were mm-hmm. just going to die lonely on their own. And so, yeah, they bring them together yeah. and trying to, trying to get uh, the last 60 of them if possible. So, yeah. And I mean, it, and then something like the black footed ferret, you find the last colony you thought mm-hmm. was extinct. Mm-hmm. Obviously the zoos went in there, the AZA and, and and captured them all Correct. to bring them under human care to save the species. Mm-hmm. So that does happen. So I think, I think zoos, accredited zoos get a bad rap sometimes. So, you know, that's for the people that, that don't work there. And, and so you kind of understand why this happens sometimes. But hopefully now Whatever. people with the zoos that were, sh- um, but maybe Chris now too, with uh, the, everything being closed for a long time and a lot of the zoos mm-hmm. are starting to reopen Use, utilizing a lot of safety. Some are doing drive-through safaris. Some are mm-hmm. uh, doing social distancing, only letting a certain amount of people in. You have to register ahead of time, things like that. Hopefully now people are maybe more interested in going to learn about their local accredited zoo since it was taken, since they didn't have that option before, right? Yeah. We're all learning yeah. kind of in this pandemic of like, wow, I should have done more of X, Y, and Z uh, when mm-hmm. I had a chance. They need the support. I mean, they they do the absolutely for Bad. a multitude of reasons. Bad. Absolutely. All right, let's finish evolution. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, tangent. That's all right. That's, that's what makes this podcast that's, awesome. I mean, I just proved the point that we don't do any planning ahead of time. That we just yeah, no, but it's, go. It's good, we sometimes go on emotional tangents, and I apologize. <laughs> all right. So, classification of androids: orders primates, suborder Haplerhini. Uh, which is the Tazers and Simeons. The infraorder is the interesting ones. So Simiiforms, and these are the New World monkeys. So your capuchins you talked about, squirrel monkeys, those uh, down that list. And then it does include uh, the humans, you know, great apes, us, which is Homidae. That's the family. The family of Gibbons, Hylobatidae. And then the mandrels, are part of the family. Okay, I'm going to say this. Seropithecidae. Seropithecidae. Great okay, job. There you go. So that is the old world monkeys. So in this family, you have 24 genera, 134 different species. So we have plenty of primates to cover, Angie. We won't run out. <laughs> Excellent. And yeah. So then the genus is Mandrillus. And then obviously we have the two species. So Mandrillus Sphinx is the mandrill. Mm-hmm. Can't forget that. That's Mandrillus a good one. Sphinx. Mm-hmm. They're amazing. Yeah. So we talked about that. Now the drill is Mandrillus leucophaeus. And their range is just, I think, a little bit north of mandrills. 
So, you know, you, you have all these rivers. I mean, we go back to uh, gorillas, the, the Western lowlands and the upper, high, all the different ones. Mountains. All the different yeah. species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all separated by these rivers, these huge rivers. Bonobos and chimpanzees or bonobos and chimpanzees. Huge river divided them. And that's what led to their speciation. So same thing here, mandrills and drills. So same, same genre, just you have mandrillus sphinx is the mandrill. Okay, you probably don't remember, maybe you do, the largest primate ever, and I'm bringing it up again for for a reason, because it tells an interesting story that I want to tell. Do you remember? (laughs) And this is our podcast, so you get to tell the stories you want to tell. Do I remember? Oh, goodness, no, Chris, no. You don't remember the largest primate ever. I was like, oh my God, this thing was enormous, looked like a great ape. I mean, all that comes to mind is Godzilla, basically. No, or not Godzilla. Godzilla's sorry, oh, hold on. <laughs> Godzilla. <is> the <laughs> sorry, mom brain reptile. You're thinking of King Kong. King. There you go. No, not that big. Okay, but Gigantopithecus. That's a great name. Was FYI, gi- that's a, awesome. Orangutan. Remember, he looked like a giant orangutan in China. I don't so remember, that's, but that's why. Yeah, oh, that's like why I keep you around. Pods ago. <laughs> It was 150 pods ago. Come on. Yeah, was a, I was like. I mean, I said Godzilla for goodness sakes, Chris. So it's it's been a long it's been a long week. School just started. No, it's like it's been oh, a long yeah, like yeah. five months for you. <laughs> Locked up six months. Not that anybody's counting, but yes. <laughs> yeah, ever since this COVID stuff started. So um, no, okay. So this was huge. Like I had to bring him up again. Ten feet tall, or three meters, eleven hundred pounds, or five hundred kilograms. Looked like orangutans enormous wow okay and only died out a hundred thousand years ago interesting survive yeah they survived for they survived for millions of years in china what happened and this is an interesting story that's why i i kind of because i was looking this up again and i was like oh and i, I found this really good article of national geographic i'll link it is the climate change and the size became a fatal handicap and this is what happened to like the giant rhino. Which right. Was, they like, were the big back ever. in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Largest land mammal ever. It was, it was enormous. All of these massive, the giant ground sloth. So what happened is, is the climate changed. So Gigantopithecus ate fruits, nuts, you know, that type of diet. And being so big, they needed large amounts of food to survive. Had a very slow generation interval. So very small family size groups didn't, you know, breed often because they needed, you know, talk about energy expenditure. The the environment just didn't survive large families, things like that. So when you're huge, all of a sudden climate changes, it didn't probably happen as drastic as quickly as it did now, is they couldn't adapt to a diet of like more leaves and roots and things like that or grasses as these forests went away. And so they went extinct. So I was taking it. So, and they were talking about, it was really interesting too. Cause then it's like, you think of dinosaurs, dinosaurs survived for millions and millions of years, you know, hundred million years, no problem. Huge. huge the largest years. of them eating leaves, like the nutritionist yes. in me still cannot wrap my, <laughs> my how. small brain around that. But anyways, but where do reptiles, well, even though they're, they're, they're pseudo reptiles, but cold blooded, they get a lot of energy from the sun, right? To help thermoregulate. So 
a warm, you know, very warm earth. Dinosaurs can survive pretty fine on these just plant-based diets. It's still a lot of leaves though. I know. I know. Like Like, I'm glad that I'm not a zookeeper for a Brachiosaurus, period. A lot of leaves (laughs) to feed them and a lot of poo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A couple hundred pounds a day. But the the cold-blooded animals can survive you know, changes because they get energy from the sun to help them thermoregulate. Sure. For mammals, we burn a lot of energy. We burn more energy. So our metabolisms are faster. Until you, we hit 40. <laughs> yeah. And, that's and then way it out. it's a different story. <laughs> so I just take this as a warning, you know, so I'm looking at things like elephants, giraffes, some of our larger mammals, our sea mammals, you know, our whales, you know, as, as fish stocks are depleted, plankton, all these things, they're at a major disadvantage when, when things like this happen. So that's what, it's just a, a warning is, is why I bring this up. You know, Gigantopithecus, look it up. Amazing, like huge, crazy looking. I'm going to uh, save this really. on my quiz notes for Chris, because you'll probably ask me in the next 50 pods when we do another primate. <laughs> And I'll be like, I don't know. But then I'll, I'll have a You still know the largest bird ever. I'll have a cheat sheet. Yeah, that, that was one. elephant yeah. something. Yeah, we elephant bird yeah. out of Madagascar. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> Just as tall. It's all, that's, the thing. All right. that's what I tell my students. So in science, anything when you're learning a new language or facts or mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. you really, you, you do need a little bit. I'm not, a, I don't like to teach repetition because that's not the best way to learn. It's better to apply it and try to use hands-on and think through yeah. it yourself with critical thinking. But there is something to be said about just repetition, right? Of like getting yeah. it in your language, using it all the time. So anyways, yeah, yeah, good yeah. stuff. All right. Mandrills live up to 20 years in the wild. Mm-hmm. 31 under human care on average. I think I saw some over 40. Yeah. Yeah. Know. Some can be over yeah. 40 under human care. So yeah, that's a long yeah. time. Yeah. I know, I know, I know. It's pretty good for for a monkey. Mm-hmm. You know, remember, not a great ape, it's a monkey. Now, Angie, I <laughs> their main predator is a leopard. I sent you that video. <laughs> Did you watch it? <laughs> oh, no, uh, okay. I sent you that video of a leopard walking through a resort in Africa. I just died laughing when I saw it. Of I course. It's not gonna, I'm not going to watch it because it, <laughs> it didn't happen to me, and I'm still bitter. <laughs> Right away, that's well, that was like my my friend, my friend Laura, when she's another fellow scientist, and she studies yeah. rhino. She's brilliant. I got to get her on the pod. But she, uh, she, they, her and her family like pull up to Kruger National Park, and they're out of the little, you know, getting out of the small little airport there, uh, and they basically, as they are exiting and heading to the the camp where we were staying before the conference. She says, oh, yeah, we all these people were stopped on the side of the road, and there was a leopard. And I was like, you, <laughs> you get out of here with your leopard. So, yes, her five-year-old son got to see a leopard and her husband. Uh, and I love all of them, and I'm happy for all of them, kind of. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so one animal Angie has yet to see in Africa. So I uh, I saw this video of this leopard just walking through a resort like, whatever, what's up? Hey, how you doing, folks? Walking right by tables and I just was laughing. I'm like, poor Angie. It's never going to see a leopard no. in life. That's right, okay. So it's good, it's are- good to have things to like fight for and live for, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So leopards are the main predator of mandrills, but young mandrills could be taken by like rock pythons crowned eagles so they can get get nabbed by some of these lesser predators and humans um, like we and humans obviously yeah for sure 
Now, like I said earlier, these are omnivores, so you know, eat tons of like a hundred species of plants, insects, fruit. They will okay. So being carniv carnivorous, they're carnivorous part of them. Like I said, will eat insects, so ants, beetles, uh, spiders, scorpions, things like that. They'll eat eggs. They will eat other vertebrates like uh, frogs, birds, tortoises shrews porcupines Ouch. like how do they manage that one i don't know and then they might things like bay tigers and other small animals yeah little small <laughs> antelopes <laughs> i know i'm like come on man trolls you're cute but those those fangs i'm just like ah but yes chris overall about three quarters or more of their diet is going to be herbivorous and so it's going to include 50 percent seeds 26 percent leaves the flowers things like that so uh, mm-hmm. the plants predominate, but yep, a little protein never hurt anybody and they're, they're yeah, smart. No, so insects mm-hmm. are fine. Yeah. Just those baby, those dikers. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, last factoid I've, I found is they have cheek pouches. They stuff their, their, their face full of food. They do the, the, they when they're foraging else, yeah. both on the ground and in trees, they, mm-hmm. they'll, they might travel up to a mile a day, uh, depending mm-hmm. on what the day looks like and where they're at. And when they travel from patch to patch, yeah, they have, I, I just think of like baseball players with sunflower seeds. Yeah. They, yeah. they have these, yeah, they'll yeah. keep some seeds in there for, you know, if you get hungry on the road. Right. It's kind of like when you're, <laughs> you know, you have that, find that piece of steak or green yeah, stuck yeah, in your yeah, teeth yeah. later. You're like, jeez. Yeah. Louise, but yeah, they have actually yeah. specialized pouches for that, little compartments. Which yeah, yeah, I thought that was cool. Yeah. What other behaviors? I I'm, I've read some of the stuff on the color, but I'm going to leave that to you because you're the behavior expert. Uh, did you prepare four back slides back. based on their color? <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> I'm right, so, so sorry. I pre- this it. is a great yeah. spot for you guys to fast forward me. Uh, but I no. am a physiologist by heart, and I, I have. And I've had the awesome ability to be able to teach the integumentary system to physiology and anatomy students, which integumentary is just a big fancy word, science word for skin, the the science of skin, the physiology of skin, which interestingly enough is your largest organ. So it's important, right? It keeps all of our jiggly wiggly cells and muscles and things intact. So we obviously need it, but Thinking about the mandrill and that beautiful blue cheek nasal highlights and the brilliant red nose, it looks like it's the color of their skin. And as I kept reading more and more, I just kept questioning, well, what is, do they have melanocyte skin cells that make blue? And if so, why didn't we get that, right? I would love to have like a little like blue above my eyes or... So just briefly, the pigments that humans and animals that we have in our skin come from specialized cells that make the pigments called melanocytes. The protein that they make is called melanin. But our skin color in humans come from three different proteins that the melanocytes make. Melanin, carotene, not not to be confused with keratin that like your hair is made out of. So melanin, carotene, and hemoglobin. And they basically make up all the beautiful colors of human skin from so from pigment shades that include white to yellow to red hues to brown to black. And I think what people don't really realize, at least when I taught the class, uh, is that different skin colors in humans is not because 
you don't have melanocytes, right? Because melanin's often with freckles and dark skin patches, it's often think of, well, that's darker skin. And yes, the melanin pigment does create some of the more of the brown pigments or the darker pigments, but everyone has them. Everyone makes melanin. It's just the different specific type of melanin. So I won't get into the chemistry there, but there's basically, yeah. thank you. <laughs> no, but there's, well, there's you, there's you melanin and feel melanin. Yeah. And so they're, 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 you yeah. know, they probably just have different little amino acid tails yeah, yeah, on them yeah, to yeah. make them slightly different, yeah. but it's the mixtures of these and the amounts that make your skin, whatever color it is. And of course, as we know in our human population, there's a beautiful rainbow of color. And then there's people that have really cool different colorations of their skin, whether it's a freckle or a beauty mark mm-hmm. or things like that. Mm-hmm. And so all that has to do with the amount and type of melanin that your melanocyte is producing. But compared to mandrels, our skin color is boring, right? Like yeah, yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah, of, yeah. you know, our, 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 our cheeks might flush pink if we're embarrassed or our lips might be more red depending on your genetics. But, uh, in, um, and we do know that in humans, the amount of pigment that you make in your skin and how the different ones mix together is co- is controlled by about six genes. So I couldn't find how many genes control mandrel skin color, but blue is just incredibly unique in the mammal kingdom that the mandrel makes this blue face and blue booty. But in general, between birds and reptiles and definitely mammals, mm-hmm. The vast majority of them cannot make blue pigment pigments. They don't the, the melanocytes don't are not capable of making blue. They can make a little bit of a red hue, a little bit of a yellow hue, some of these browns. So I'm of, okay, I'm just thinking blue-bellied lizard. Okay, so are you ready to have your mind prepared? Prepare to have your mind blown. Okay, and I'm not going to be okay. able to explain it because I'm not definitely not a like uh, a material <laughs> physicist, rocket yes, science engineer. person. Yeah, yeah, okay, definitely okay. not. But okay. it's crazy fascinating. It's all basically an illusion. Mammals, huh. the mandrel, beautiful blue jays, birds, and of course, reptiles that have blue colorations have hacked the system. They do this and create this blue color by an optical, I don't want to say illusion, but uh, scientists mm-hmm. say technology, basically. It's a trick of structure. So depending on a class of animal, whether it's a, 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 a blue morph butterfly, I mean, it sounds horrible, but if you ground up mm. a blue morph butterfly, their wings would not be blue. They, it would just be a brown colored dust. The way that the outer surface of their wings, those cells are reflective in creating some color of pigments, perhaps perhaps yellow and maybe some brown or something. And it's the way that the light hits the outer surface layer of the wing and then reflects reflects back to our human eyes that we perceive blue. And in birds, like bird feathers, right? Okay, peacock mm-hmm. feather, whatever. That's not actually a blue pigment or a blue melanocyte or anything like that. It's the way that the, the feather is made out of the keratin in a certain crazy evolutionary bubble-like structure that makes the blue color, perhaps from like, once again, a yellow pigment or something like that. It is, like I said, I love this article that I read out of NPR and National Public Radio. It's like they basically like hacked 
optical technology. I mean, there, it's crazy. Okay, my brain is hurting. Yes, there and is, so and so with the going back years. Hold on, oh. go back years. Radio Lab did a you know, one of the top podcasts for a long time. I, I don't know if it still is or not, but they did one on the color blue, mm-hmm. and that it's actually not real. It's our brain. How it was the most bizarre. Like there's there's societies or, or, or I don't know cultures on earth that don't see blue but we do like it was crazy it hurts your brain oh so, you'll have to find that we have to find that radio lab and put it on the show notes or at least I mean okay, I'm probably I'll, the only I'll, one that'll click on it like years from now I'll be like yeah we had one person click on that I'm like oh that was me Chris but no it it's, I, I will find it okay so you're telling me you're telling me it is not blue. No. It is yellow brown and we think it's blue. Right. So so when we get back to the mandrel, what what you know, what we're more closely related to yeah. the, related to than a butterfly, a bird or a reptile or whatever yeah. is basically those bright colors, that bright blue um in even the red, the the brightness of the red are basically derived from light diffraction in certain collagen fibers, the way they're structured. And so collagen is like a, is a protein in the face. I mean, anybody my age, a woman my age knows all about collagen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. so the way that the, the way it's like a support system of the cell of the outer layer outer layer of the of the epidermis of your skin, the way that they're structured. So it's basically all an illusion. But golly gee, do they pull it off like none the other? And not only. Do they pull off this blue light show that's, I guess, all in our brains and not in their skin? Uh, but mandrills do it, like I said, like the only mammal that we know of, really. And of course, I'm not the only one fascinated by the blue color. I mean, researchers that study them are in love with them and want to learn more about them. And But what we do know about the red and blue face of the mandrill and their blue and purple red booties, if you will, hind ends, is that the most dominant male is going to have the brightest coloration. And research researchers have been able to show that the most dominant male has the highest testosterone level, which that's not a surprise. We see that a lot in the animal kingdom. But what's even more fascinating is dominant males, when they, they gain this status because they either win a fight or they hit a certain age, they'll actually lose some of the hair on their bum to show mm. off the color, the brighter colors, now. And researchers do not know all the mechanisms. Otherwise, maybe we could turn your face blue or something, but they don't know exactly yeah. how the testosterone basically ignites the brilliant coloration of the dominant male. Mm-hmm. But they do know that subordinate males obviously have lower testosterone levels and are able to suppress this bright color until they become king of the hill. They become king of the hill, testosterone yeah. levels go up, they and basically, they lose some some hair on their booty, and they, everything becomes bright. Fascinating. <laughs> Shit going into them. This is why the show. Okay. Isn't it fun? I have so it, much well, fun every was, week. It's yeah. It's like you know, human males. I mean, I guess we do we do do things to impress females, but some of the stuff in the animal world is insane. What males have to do or do to get the attention. Let me tell you from a woman's perspective, if somebody was walking by flashing that I would do a double take and I'm a, I'm a married woman. So I always joke. I always, I always joke to my husband. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm married, but I'm not dead, you know? So I can still look. And, um, 
But yeah, it's it's just it's just yeah. crazy impressive. The studies have shown that females that are really reproductive, like have a lot of reproductive success, success and are maybe a little bit more dominant and older, have brighter colors than other and then their female counterparts. Hmm. So I, they, they, I couldn't find what hormone that was, or if we even know. It's, but I mean, it's, it's probably testosterone related. Yeah, you think? I or mean, something. Dominant females are they do have more testosterone running through them, right? Right. Like, not a lot. It's not like you know male levels, but still a little bit. They have found that sometimes some of these really amazing athletes do just genetically have a teeny tiny bit more testosterone that they make, right. Um, right, which right, is, right. you know, interesting because there's all these debates like, well, should they be able to compete with women? And I mean, I don't know much right. about it because I'm not in that world, but I'm like, uh, yeah. yes, like whatever. Yeah. That was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just because somebody's taller doesn't mean that they like yeah. can't play basketball, right? Like that's what you exactly. want. Like, yeah. so, <laughs> but it is, it's really, it's really, it's quite controversial actually yeah. uh, with the Olympic people that's or whatever. Um, but yeah, so no, but women definitely do. Contrary to maybe some people's okay. belief, women definitely produce tes- testosterone, and that might be the key. But I'd, all you mm-hmm. budding young um, researchers out there and grad students and honors project students or just people that are curious, that would be a cool question to answer if these more dominant, brightly colored, reproductively successful females do have more testosterone than the other ones. Or what hormone is it? Hey, so I did find the radio lab. It's called Why Isn't the Sky Blue? came out May 2012. Oh, my God. Like. I'm getting so old. It does not seem that long ago. Well, it's, I mean, it's brilliant science, so it's classic, right? It's, it doesn't, it doesn't get dated. It it is. It's a good one. It's a good one you want to listen to. It's very interesting. Yeah. Put it on our, put it on our show notes for any other color pigment dorks out there. Like, I guess me, the only. You. (laughs) (laughs) I'll send it to you on Facebook. All right. So any other cool behaviors other than the color? Well, Chris, I couldn't get Stop. beyond the color. No, just kidding. Um, okay, that's fine. Well, yeah, I, I mean, in general, the mandrels are terrestrial, so they'll, they they do forage and they're on the ground a lot, but they're also arboreal, and they're more arboreal than baboons in general in the canopy. And they also, when they're on the ground, they walk by digigrade quadrupolism. So basically, they walk on the toes of all four of their limbs, which ouch, but they do it very well. Uh, And then when they're in trees, they have good jumping abilities and they can do a lot of lateral jumps. So the other really cool thing is, yes, they're down foraging a lot during the day uh, if they're not up in the trees getting seeds and fruits and things and leaves. But each night they pick a new tree to sleep in. So they do sleep above a boreal in the trees, which I don't know why I just found that so charming. But they usually, like us, they're busy during the day and then they, they bunk down at nighttime. And they're selective with which tree, and and they'll, they'll change it to whichever one is comfy that night. But mandrels live mostly in a harem structure. Go females, go. Where there is a dominant male, and he defends a group of lots of ladies. And these females are also typically, a lot of them are related to each other in a, in a lineage. So mothers, daughters, cousins, females, all of that, where... The male that, of course, is born into this this harem, or it's also called a horde, so a group of mandrels is called a hordes, will the male, he'll hang out for a while, but then it probably after like five, six years old, he's he's chased out, he, he's, he leaves and he has to go uh, find another group because obviously they don't want... Um, because obviously he needs to go spread his genetics elsewhere and not with his, elsewhere, you know, his yeah. sister and his yeah. female cousins. And... 
oftentimes in a lot of primate species, you might see what they call a bachelor troop or group. Uh, but at this point, researchers don't think that that's really something that mandrills do as far as a bachelor troop. Mm-hmm. They're not known to exist. And then, of course, they have a lot of um, a lot of scent communication. So they actually have these uh, glands on their chests that produce a lot of yummy mandrill smelling stuff. Uh, to yeah, I'm sure, sure it smells wonderful. Yeah, to show off during the breeding season and or to mark territory, things like that, to talk to each other, right, in ways that we don't understand. And, of course, uh, visual face, facial. Uh, anybody that's watched any type of primate, whether – it's a, a mangabe or a tamarin or a baboon or then, of course, a great... Or your mother when you were a kid. I was going to say, or a great ape <laughs> or a human. You know what one yeah. eye, one raise of a little slight uh, raise of an eyebrow. It's interesting, uh, too. I, I told my husband that with a, a lot of the, the kids that are in school um, that are wearing face masks just to help them stay healthy and still be able to be in school, you cannot see your teacher smile. And then the teacher can't see no. you smile. So I, I was hypothesizing with John because that's what we do late at night because, yes, we're that dorky. And I think I even use the word hypothesize. But I wonder if kids will be able to read more subtle body language, like mm-hmm. shoulder movement, head tilts, eyebrows, the stuff that they can see when they can't see the smile. I don't know. I have no idea. I could be completely wrong. But Anyways, there's so much going on with um, primate communication as far as if they shake their head and shoulders, that means they're playful or they're saying, come groom me. If they show their teeth or the lips or chatter lightly, that's friendly. Of course, as you mentioned, if those canines show, you know, that's a little bit, uh, they're not happy. That's some aggression. They'll also slap the ground when they're upset. They'll stare intently um, when they are wanting to investigate something. Just once again, I didn't work with them. I, I'm sure the keepers that have worked with them just know that there's probably about a million different subtle and more non-subtle facial cues that they make not only to each other, but also to the keeper staff. And like all primates, they love to groom one another um, as a way to in, increase the bond and then also, and then of course, you know, remove any bugs or, you know, you get a little snack, you groom your friend, you get a little snack and uh, you scratch my yeah, back, yeah. I scratch your back kind of thing. No, Angie, and just, you know, conservation, like we said, they're vulnerable. We don't have hard numbers on them. Again, some of these species, obviously tough uh, to get census data on them, but they know they're suffering intense pressure in Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea. Gabon does have the largest populations of mandrills. So again, talk about that ecotourism we talked about in the beginning, good place to go see them. And, you know, that's according to IUCN. So you talk about a couple of good organizations that are working uh, on preserving mandrels? Yeah, Chris. I mean, th- there is good news for the mandrels as far as conservation efforts go. First, a big shout out to a group out of Gabon, um, out of Lekadi Park, that have been able to rehabilitate some of these mandrels that are either abandoned or the, you know, the mother's taken in for, for bushmeat and then there's an infant and working with rehabilitating them and reintroducing them back into the forests of Gabon or Gabon w- with success. So it's, uh, I read the whole paper. It's like I said, it's not an easy process, uh, but in the same instance, they seem to have a pretty good uh, outcome when they are released and have a, have a successful rate to, 
and have a successful rate of then reproducing themselves later on. So it's not the best solution, but it is it is nice to know that there's people out there that are are studying this and learning how to do this in theory, and then it, it can it can work. Um, however, the best way to conserve them is to conserve the forest around them and get the local people involved to help want to protect them and understand that you know bush meat's not the best way to go, which is easy enough for us westerners westerners to say, um, but it's it's a lot harder um, when uh, we aren't struggling for food and resources and monies the way a lot of uh, a lot of people are in other countries. But from the front of conservation itself, uh, trying to save the forest, save the mandrels in general, there's a, uh, the Wildlife Conservation Society out of the Bronx is doing a great job of trying to learn more about mandrills and basically help develop better local community-based tourism in those areas and from uh, they're training and recruiting people from the local villages and they're using radio collars, uh, camera traps, things like that to try to reduce the amounts of poaching. So shout out to the Bronx Zoo and the Wildlife Conservation Society. I still need to get somebody uh, on, from that group um, on one of our interviews because they're like, it's like my crush. So I'm kind of like, shy. Yeah, I feel yeah, yeah. almost like shy to reach out to them because I'm like, I just love I you guys so much. Uh, but also the Jane Goodall Institute, another crush, would love to have her on mm-hmm. the on the podcast. Yeah. Her group helps coordinate something called the Mandrill Release Program. It's in the Republic of Congo, and sometimes mandrills can be found as pets or like amongst the villagers. So this program is working with a sanctuary to help get these mandrills out of that situation that's not natural for them and put them back into either a, a a forested sanctuary, and then perhaps even into the wild if if that can be allowed. It just depends on the individual uh, and their social skills and all of that. So we'll put uh, Jane Goodall's Institute on our show notes as well. And yeah, and then just a huge shout out to uh, the Franklin Park Zoo, which is in Boston. Uh, we, we've been able to go there and visit them. They also donate a lot of money to the Mandrel Release Program with the Jane Goodall Institute. So it's just another way that a lot of these accredited zoos take what very little money they have and are yeah, able to, yeah. to put it back into trying to help wildlife stay wild. No, yeah, no, it's it's all awesome, awesome organizations. So before I get to who the famous mandrel is in popular culture, just conservation tip this week. You know, one of the things I was, I was thinking is go protect your local nature area. Just go out and pick up 10 pieces of trash. You know, go out, go on your walks, whenever you are, bring a bag, wear gloves if you want, and just pick up 10 pieces of trash. You'll feel great about doing it. You're helping the environment, you're protecting wildlife, and you'll feel good about it. I was out walking the other day. I saw two pieces of plastic floating, you know, in the air. I, I grabbed them and just said, you know, and held on to it till I finished my walk and threw them away because I didn't want them going out in the oceans, you know, killing something. So there's your tip of the week. Help preserve your natural areas. Now, Angie, in the beginning, I said... <laughs> Which mandrel is famous in popular culture? And you said you knew who? Rafiki. Right. There you go. Yep, from Lion King. Yes, so. I've been blessed. Rafiki I've been blessed enough to have friends that work at Disney's Animal Kingdom behind the scenes, yeah. so I get to go to Rafiki's village. And yes, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Shout out to all of our friends there. But but it's a misnomer. I think a lot of people consider him a baboon. Yeah, he's not. He's a mandrill. He's not. Rafiki is a mandrill. So anyways, beautiful, colorful, learned a lot today. (laughs) We're going to end it there. We're done. We're done. Awesome pod. Good job, Ange. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. <laughs>